What's up, Culture Hackers? It's Robbie Richmond here for your Culture Hackers podcast. We're going to have a really fun, interesting episode today because we are with Andrew Waller and Mike Gagerman. Welcome, guys. Hey, Robbie. How's it going? Thanks for having us. So happy to be here in these Hollywood studios of yours. And the context for everyone, this is weird because when was the last time we even really hung out? 20 years ago? I saw you walking your dog the other day. That, I, well, that spurred it, but before this. I would say you and I would have hung out maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. Because yeah, we you guys were college buddies. That's Mike right. and I went to college together, and the three of us went to Brentwood High School together, and we were all on the Brentwood Flyer newspaper staff, mm-hmm. um, which was a really fun experience. It was a seminal paper. Yes. It was auspicious. Award-winning, even no? Didn't we get some kind of awards? I can't imagine I won an award. <laughs> I mean, but I, but it was it was it was a solid paper. I went and read one of my old uh, articles. I was not impressed. <laughs> we, we did at least go to national conferences. About That's true. It, we went to Columbus, Ohio. I remember that. We were nominated. I think perhaps. I think everyone was nominated. <laughs> did you get trashed with us that night where we, we, we all like like literally I we, we got bought a whole bunch of forties and got drunk in the hotel room. That was a really brutal <laughs> That was a tough next morning. Yeah, that was hard. We had to do some like round table discussions <laughs> about high school papery. Ethics and journalism. Right. I like, was not. I think I skipped the forty one. You, you were just like, you know what, I don't need any charcoal filtering. <laughs> At a Best Western <laughs> in Columbus, Ohio. Those, I, I, those were fun days. I think we thought we were a lot cooler than we were, but it still worked. I think I, think I, mean, I, think I, I knew cool. we weren't cool. Yeah. But I thought, you know, I, I thought I was, we were counterculture or something. Yeah. And we definitely were not. I mean, we knew, <laughs> we knew all of the words to nothing but a G thing. That's true. That was something. <laughs> that felt cool it wouldn't have looked cool i can't believe how many weekends we spent in front of those macintosh two le's like waiting for that remember that refresh rate on it to redesign a page Mm. like that probably would take an hour today what we had to do in a weekend right yeah and it was yeah we really would spend the whole weekend there for something that nobody read The only the only issue anyone read was the fake issue, right? Right. Which was like all, us trying to do the onion. We were like ahead of the onion, yeah. Yeah. If only we continued with that and only did parody issues, like mm-hmm. we would have been famous. Also, if we had gotten jobs at Amazon or Google. That would have been another way to go. <laughs> that would have been the thing to do. Graduate in 97, but let's go into entertainment <laughs> as opposed to the internet. That seems like a weird call. Oh, yeah. I went after that into magazines, print magazines, <laughs> rather than the internet. Even though I had an internet version of it, I said, no, no, no. All the, all the, all the real glory is in a print magazine. Oh, internet's a fad, Oh, man. such a fad. In fact, when Amazon IPO'd, my dad um, asked me, he said, should I try to get in on this IPO? Mm-hmm. And I specifically said, I use it, but no one else will. That, those were my <laughs> words of advice to my dad on investing in Amazon. There's actually a famous uh, quote of another friend of ours from high school, Brian Lim, mm-hmm. who was also on that paper, who was going into internet and was recruited by Amazon coming out of college before it was a thing. And his quote on why he wasn't going to take that job was, bookstore on the web, how whack. <laughs> Was, was he quoted in an article about that? We, or just to we, you guys? We literally, we, we remind him of it every year. <laughs> Some years he actually thinks it's funny. Other years he's like, come on, dude. That's not funny. And now the Robbie Richmond podcast universe also knows the story. Oh, my God. It's going to be exciting when he gets this in Melbourne. He's in Melbourne. He's an econ- epi- economics professor at the University of Melbourne. Hi, Lim. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will definitely have to, to send this to him. So, where are we? We are in, are these a bunch of writer studios? Where are we right now? So, we're in a building uh, called the Hollywood Production Center. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a potpourri of entertainment-related things. There are a lot, there are like editing suites. There There are some writer's rooms for like TV shows. And then there's a couple people like us that just have individual little offices. Yeah. Um. It's it tends to be a kind of temporary home for a lot of productions, pre-production, post-production kind of thing. We've been here for we're probably the longest running tenants. We've been here for mm. 
maybe six years. Well, I'm I'm a super fan. I've I've not seen any of your stuff, but I'm a super fan. And you guys must be funny because when I got here and I just said I'm here for Waller, the receptionist literally started cracking up. And then the second one said Waller time, and then they started cracking up. So you guys must just be the funniest people here. Well, we do treat this, even though obviously our whole company is just Mike and I. Mm-hmm. We do treat this as like an office where we're like the guys at the water cooler, like trying to gossip with the people who have no idea who we are. <laughs> so we try to make our presence. I, I really love an office environment, mm-hmm. and uh, but as screenwriters, you don't really get that very much, you know. It's very rare that you're kind of surrounded by. I mean, I'm surrounded by anybody but Mike. Yeah, yeah. We're thinking of getting cubes, just because it <laughs> would make Andrew happy. And an, an intern would be nice. Some sort mm-hmm. of an intern. Anybody listening? Hey, <laughs> want to be our intern? Got it. Yeah. So, um, so last week you guys couldn't do the podcast because you were doing a pitch, right? Yes. How'd the pitch go? You know what? It actually. Uh, well, wait. That's was that the one? What was that one? That was the one that got pushed till Friday. It's actually this yeah, Friday. Yeah, we haven't done now. that pitch yet. Oh, but we did end up spending last week finishing a, a a second draft of a of a TV pilot that we're writing. Okay, and is is this one of those Hollywood secret things where if you say it, somebody could hear this podcast and steal the the idea, or can you actually share something? I mean, we could share some of the stuff that we're doing. We are working on we're working on a um, a script called uh, One Night Six Parties, and it's about what you can imagine. It's about a bunch of guys who end up going to six parties in a night. Right. So, hot tub time machine meets four weddings and a funeral. Exactly. Oh, that's not bad. Mm-hmm. I see it. I, I see what he's going for. Yeah, it's just a, the you know it it ends up being. You know, just guys going to crazy parties in New York, and that's and us coming up with different crazy ways for and that. There's no time travel in it, although now I'm thinking maybe there should be. Yeah, are you guys going to do some some research on this in New York and actually go deep deep cover into the party scene? Uh, that would have been a smart thing to do before we wrote it, but <laughs> now I don't know that our wives would be like, "Wait, I thought you already turned that script in." Yeah, I don't really think you should be going to a fetish party. <laughs> In Brooklyn. Yeah. And, yeah, and I'm not sure it would have been better. I think the fetish party scene actually worked out pretty well just with our imaginations. But It's probably better. I mean, remember watching those John Hughes films and all the parties that would be going on there, and you just so wanted to be at it, and then you went to a real high school party, and it was like, what is this? This is, this is nothing like I've seen in the movies. Right. So your parties are probably much better. I hope so. In the movie. We like a nice hyper real aspect to what's yeah. going on. Like I don't want we're not the guys who write the stuff that looks exactly like your life. We're mm-hmm. hoping it looks better than your life. Right. We're hoping that you're going to go to the movie and be like, "Oh, I recognize that character as being me but in a much more awesome situation." Got it. Aspirational you. Yes. And how do these pitches work? Are you just sitting in there bullshitting talking about it? Do you play a soundtrack? Do you act it out right in front of them? Like, I love the soundtrack idea. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, so the pitches, they tend to be fairly rehearsed. It's us somewhat trying to act. We don't tend to do a lot of characters. Occasionally, if we have a really like killer line, we might try to dip into a character, but it's it's not a strength. It The pitch... If the pitch feels like us dancing for 15 to 20 minutes, breathlessly trying to tell a story and keep it entertaining, and then and it's over. Do you look for like visual cues, like if they just start looking down or if they like, and then you have to switch it up and get their attention back? Or like, what's, what's going on on a nuanced level in those pitch meetings? Oh, yikes. That's just, well, like if I see them looking down or there's a yawn, the like, just well, all that does is just set off like a huge amount of anxiety in my head. Because you have to finish it. So right. So you you just what happens is you end up speeding up in a way that's really not helpful mm-hmm. because you get in your head like, oh, this is tanking. We need to get through this faster, yeah. which just makes it worse. So yeah. once that spiral starts, you're just kind of fucked. It sounds like a bad date. Yeah, mm. I haven't been on a on a on a date in a long time, but that sounds about right. <laughs> well, I think I mean I think it starts. I mean, generally it starts with you know of like so you know Mike and I'll have a kernel of an idea, right, and then we'll and then we'll just start fleshing it out, right. So in this office, we start talking about oh yeah, wouldn't it be funny if um, you know if this guy you know got into trouble in in this way if oh he went down the 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 script that that got made 
Mike had this idea like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if your you know, buddy called from Mexico saying, I'm naked on a road in Mexico. You guys got to come get me. And then it becomes the discussion of, well, you're the two friends who get that phone call. What's the first thing that has to happen? Well, we have to get in our car, but what if the car's not starting? Where do we have to go there? We, uh, we have to get cash, so we go to the Indian casino, and what happens there? And we sort of build that out into you know, like into a bigger kind of story structure idea, three-act story structure uh, with all these characters. And then converting that into pitch form can be a whole nother thing because you actually need to tell that whole story in a really condensed form. You have to tell the whole story in a way that connects emotionally without telling all the beats of the story, but enough of the beats that they can figure out everything that happens. Yeah. But it still has to be unique and interesting and not obvious. Right. So it's a it's a difficult line to toe. Yeah. Uh, you tend to want to start with sort of more broad, uh, kind of conceptual things. Uh, you know, is no matter what, even if it's a even if it's essentially a dumb road comedy. They want to know that it's about something, and they want to know what the kernel of truth in that is. Yeah, and is is it interactive? Are they asking questions and talking to you through it, or are you just dance monkey dance the whole time? So when it's going well, it's interactive. Those yeah. are the best pitches. Yeah, um, and I think you know we're we're really curious when we talk to other writers because we don't really get to see other people pitch, so we don't really know what it looks like for everyone. We only know what it looks like for us. Mm. It. It can often be the dance monkey dance version, which is the one that that isn't doesn't go as well because they're not engaged. Because so right. we we try to structure it in such a way that there's space, that there's room to breathe for them to ask questions. Yeah, because those are the ones that the ones that are more conversational are the ones that go better. Totally. Yeah, and, and the weird thing is the dance monkey dance is more our fault than theirs. Mm-hmm. The that when we craft a pitch, we're alone in this room. It's really tough to anticipate what the questions are going to be. So we tend to put together almost like a story that we're telling, almost like you would tell a story to your kids. And and as a result, we want to get from one beat to the next to the next, and we're not leaving as much space for them to interact. So we've been we work on it. We try to figure out ways to open up where we can, okay, we can pause here, and this will give them an opportunity to interact. And, um, the, you know, and the ones that are dance monkey dance are because for whatever reason, we've structured it in a weird way where there's no opportunity for them to come in. Yeah. Have you heard of this book called How to Pitch Anything? Mm-mm. It's by Oren Clough. I think it's this guy who pitches just hundred million dollar deals just all the time. And he wrote this book about his process and it's fascinating. And he, he compares the whole thing and says the best pitches are flirting. Uh-huh. That you like flirt, mm. and that's the whole interaction. And he talks about how the 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 most important attention in a pitch isn't passion, it's energy, it's attention. And if you hold their attention, mm. and so he's got these fascinating stories where he'll lose their their attention. One time he saw a guy like drawing his hand as as he's talking, mm. you know, and rather than continuing the speech, he just stops and goes. Wow, that's that's an awesome hand painting there. Like, <laughs> I I want to I want to buy that. How much? And then they start negotiating over the price of the hand painting. And, like, he brings back the meeting. So mm. he's totally just in this almost martial art form of, like, just going to go with whatever's in the room as opposed to his agenda. Yeah, that would actually— That's ballsy. Uh, yeah, no, I also think it would—I also think in a lot of ways it would work. We, we tend to do things like prepare—we prepare chatter, right? We prepare when we go in there, hey, what happened— you know, what happened on Monday? Oh, there was the Vanity Fair cover with Caitlyn Jenner. That's going to be a topic of conversation that, that can start a conversation. What happened with Deflategate? Like, during, you know, like yeah. you can, because if you have a funny perspective or a fun perspective on that, which we should have because we're supposed to be funny writers, we should be doing, you know, we should be trying to steer the conversation that way. So it starts as kind of a fun, right? This is a fun, hey, we might as well be out of drinks. We're just talking. Oh, and by the way, we have this idea and it's about these two guys and this right, is a fun right, thing right. that happens. Yeah, yeah. There, there's always this beginning part of the meeting that is, I guess you could call it a flirtation. That's accurate. Where it's like, what's been going on? What are you guys up to? Right. We Did you see this? And you, you were hoping to set a tone and get everybody, you know, in a laughing mood. And then at some point somebody says, OK, so we're here to talk about whatever. And then, you know, and then and then that's our cue to 
to to presumably launch into the pitch. Right. And then sometimes when we're doing it well, it it will feel of the same tone as the conversation. And when we're not doing it well, all of a sudden we feel like newscasters just reading off of a, a story that they have no connection to. Yeah. So what would you do next time that happens? If you're in that mode and you feel like you're 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 in newscaster mode, like what would you do right then? Usually it's it's we have not developed the skill to break from it because you are in the middle of a story you have to finish. Right. There is I've caught myself in it and I've just tried to get myself to slow down. Mm. Um slowing down is a big one. Um we there's been the occasional sort of ad lib you know because we do essentially we take turns right we pass it back mm-hmm. and forth to each other and there are times where we've been able to sort of ad lib jokes that feel, that that are more off the cuff off of what Andrew's saying where i might think of a way to 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 jump in with something and if i jump in it could make the the listener more comfortable jumping in yeah. but you know the other you know one of the the biggest x factors is everybody you pitch to is different and receives pitches in in different ways right some people laugh and they give you a lot so when you're making jokes you you feel better about it and some people have you know what they call listening faces where they're just sitting there with their notebook and they're really concentrating and and figuring out the story when you're pitching comedy that's really hard because you feel like you're dying yeah, totally. I mean, I think we, for whatever reason, we dis, uh, lean on being very, very prepared. Like, and and that's, and so we know, like, if somebody, if a, a producer knows that if they're going in with us to a bunch of networks or a bunch of studios, they're gonna, we're gonna deliver the pitch, all of the characters. They're gonna know that we're gonna walk out of the room, and everybody's gonna get what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not they want to buy that, that's another thing. One of the things that other people do is it's a little more unpredictable. And then you're not sure for those people if they're going to be able to translate the entire thing, you know, in the room. But it might be a little bit more of a fun room. And our goal recently has been to try to bridge that gap a little bit. But it's a tough one because we do we do want to be polished. Right, right. So... In your office here, like you guys are two writers, it's your own company. Do you do you come in every day at nine a.m.? Is there a work schedule? Like, how do you how do you go about that? There, I mean, there is. We have our hours. Like, we we take our we tend to drop the kids off at school, so we get in between nine and nine thirty, uh-huh. um, and often have to be you know depending on what you know whatever the the the. Uh, the politics in the houses at the time, who's going to be home with kids. So we do tend to work like a, like essentially a nine to six regular hours. We're then often in on weekends, sometimes nights or working from home. There's no reason why we have to be in the office. Right. Well, so, so one of the things that's happening in the workplace now is millennials really want a flexible work environment. They, right. Which you know, we have. I mean, we do. Right. So I, I think part of it, part of it, you know, people can say is whiny and entitled, but I think part of it makes sense in that, you know, there are sometimes at three in the afternoon where I'm worthless, and I think I should be not doing work because I could do harm. You know, like right. there, I think it goes in in flows, and I would think, especially with the creative process, that you're not just on nine to six. Like, does it not ever? Do you not ever see cycles and flows to be like, you know, what it's it's afternoon four o'clock, like we're not hitting it. Let's just not do this or do something else. Or that no, so that happens a lot, and I, I will say that one of the reasons why I, I wanted to be a writer was for the flexible hours right. and to not be in an office. Right. And then it's as I've gotten older and as my life has gotten more structured, I've, I've craved more of that structure. Um, and yes, we have those days. We have those weeks where we're sitting in the office, but we're just surfing and nothing's getting done. And sometimes we're like, let's go see a movie. And that can help to break up the day or let's take a walk. Uh, I will say, though, if without some structure, I don't think you'd get anything done. Right. You, you Sometimes even when you're not hitting it creatively your job is to just sit there and get something down that you Mm -hmm. can that you can work from and fix later uh that you that you can't just work when you feel like it because you won't you won't do enough Mm. yeah i think i mean i think for me i think the the most unfortunate thing is i think if you if somebody like you followed us around for three months you might be able to actually restructure what we do to maximize what we do in a lot better way because I think we are consistent 
in a lot of our inconsistencies. So like there, the way we put a pitch together, you might be able to say, guys, this is what you do. You guys stress out for three days, <laughs> get nothing done, and then on the fourth day, you jam it out. So why not just... Right. You know, why not just just take those three days and go enjoy yourself mm-hmm. and then or work on something else? Yeah. And then know on that fourth day, you got to come in and really power it like you were able to do it. I don't know that those three days of of doing of not working helped. Yeah. And that's I mean, I think that happens. I mean, I think some people are able to structure that in where they decide, oh, you know, my creative process is I'm reading a book and I in, my, in the shower, something will come to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we've, you know, structured our work life to be able to allow for. Right. So so what what do you guys find interesting or unique about the Hollywood culture that our listeners wouldn't know from watching TV, from watching E, from like, like what are what are some of the the deeper, maybe darker things that you've realized working here that you wouldn't have expected? I mean, I think it's I, I think it's a very it feels like a very hard job, like a harder job than I think I would have imagined. Like people would think it's easier. I de- definitely think people would think it's easier. I would definitely think people would think, hey, you know, you write, you know, you write a good script, you're in good shape. And there's a lot of other factors to that because yeah. you could write a good script and they could not be looking for that kind of script at that kind of time. Or you could be in good shape for that moment, but then the next thing you write doesn't isn't as well received and now you're in bad shape mm-hmm. because you've lost it. Right. You know, so that that you're you know, you're sort of only doing as well as your last thing. Well how and how much does that change given that um there's so many opportunities now to create your own stuff to be on YouTube, and is is it is it still that there's just this big gate that the studios have um, that they control your life, or are you able to have now new avenues to to go about creatively? So I, I think it depends. I think there are new avenues. I think it's almost like a separate. In it's it, it's how much you let the studios control it. It 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 it, it all depends on what game you're playing. Mm-hmm. If you're playing in the studio game, it it does tend to look the same as it always did. It's still a pretty traditional route. The people who are finding these new avenues are, are essentially just doing that on their own, and that's and that's smart, right? Uh, because there's no because you should be playing sort of in both sandboxes. And people are much more impressed if you're the type of person who can do something on if you don't need them. Right. Like if you're, you know, if you're somebody who makes your own, you know, movies on your own, if you uh, find your own financing, you're going to be more interesting to a lot more people than if you're going to be reliant on, um, you know. Speaking of financing. Yeah. Relativity. Right. Right. Sure. What's his name? Ryan Kavanaugh. Yeah. Ryan Kavanaugh, who we all knew, like we would never expect would have turned out and like i mean it's amazing yeah he's he's done an incredible thing and you know so re- for, for everybody not understanding can you just say what relativity is well no it's just one of it's it's one in like a new studio and sort of a new era i mean there hadn't been a kind of a big new studio in a long time and he this guy we went to high school with who was in our class uh you know found a way to creatively finance movies and became a real you know, kind of powerhouse in the industry. Didn't they say he had some type of formula too that like that they could predict how movies were going to do based on some algorithm? Yeah, no, there is a, there is a, there was a sort of sense, I think in the early days that that was part of how he was, I think that was, there was some marketing in that. I mean, because mm-hmm. I think his background was in finance and in the same way that there is a lot of those formulas that, you know, people in Wall Street used to say the reason why their hedge fund is going to perform better than other hedge funds is because they so i i do think there was i knew i do know that there was talk of a formula i don't know if it was real if it was marketing if it was something mm-hmm. that he said that that people latched on to but really they've just operated very sort of smartly they've found ways to like Andrew said, creatively finance and get themselves involved with. What does that mean? Does that mean they found private investors for movies when that didn't happen before? Yeah, right. I'm, There's that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a little unclear on the details, but it, from what it sounded like, it, it it had originally started that he was finding people to the studios at some point did not want to finance their own movies. Right? They mm-hmm. wanted to find outside private equity to help them 
uh, finance their movies, and so he would to mitigate risk. Yeah, and so he was the guy very you know very early on who was the guy who could find that money, and so then he was able to get in the rooms with you know all of the sort of studio players because they wanted that access to that money, and then he was able to use that to parlay it into his own studio. Yeah. And and did you ever call him up and say, "Throw me a bone here"? Well, we've hung, we've we we have hung out with him a little bit, not very much, uh, but um, but yeah, no, we haven't we haven't worked with them yet. And on on some level, I mean, he he you know he's very open to hanging out. On some level, when you're when you're a studio head, there's. There's only, there's only so much you can do. You know what I mean? Like he's it's not. It's almost like he's too big. He's too for big us to, help to help us, us. <laughs> right? Because he's not the guy that you go walk the into the room and 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 pitch to, and yeah. and he buys it because those guys all report to him. Right. I think if we had something and brought it to them, he's somebody that we could reach out to and say, "Hey, by the way, we're we're, we're going to be pitching to your guys," and it you know couldn't hurt. Mm-hmm. But uh, in a way, it's it's more helpful to have the guys who are who are the ones that you're pitching to who are a little lower down the ladder. Yeah, got it. And so, how much how much do you think drugs are involved in, in, in Hollywood? Like, I remember reading the stories about Seth Rogen and just being a a, a a a whole set of fog in his office of of smoking constantly. Well, the gra- the greatest th- well the greatest thing was when I sort of started. I you know I was like a PA on movie sets mm-hmm. in like the late '90s. And everybody would talk about the sweet years, right? Like that they were that in the eighties it was like there was a grip on every grip truck who was the guy to get the coke for everybody and like everybody was getting the B twelve shot. But it was sort of clear even in nineteen ninety eight that those that those days were behind them. That that like somehow the culture had changed away from that. So yeah, if there is I mean, I would say if there's like, you know, weed and prescription pills and stuff like that, it's all kind of vaguely medicinal (laughs) and not really – I don't know that there's a lot – I mean, if anybody's – nobody's partying in the way that they used to in those great 70s and 80s stories. Or everybody is. I mean, you know, I I think there are plenty of lawyers who have their medicinal weed and go on lunch break and and get high. Like I think in a way it's – Hollywood is like a lightning rod for that kind of attention mm-hmm. and for those kind of questions. But, I mean, sort of everybody sort of smokes weed at this point. Right. Um, the Seth Rogen stuff, that's, there's probably some truth to that. I'm sure they do, in fact, get high in their office. But, I, you know, we haven't seen that. And it's fucking miserable for me. I, don't, I mean, like, I don't – it doesn't help. <laughs> like, if I have one drink, the day's done. I, mean, I think that's, they that's would all when... say that you just have to do it more and practice and really get good at it and that you're just not good at it. I did – there was – got to put in your 10,000 hours. <laughs> yeah, there was a screenwriter at a thing I've always wanted to try where he said – that you know he got if you get stuck on at some point in the screenplay which happens a lot you just get stuck you can't see your way through the pro- you can't see your way through the problems that you're having and what he does is he would sit down he gets a cooler that he puts right next to his desk of you know and puts beer in it and just cracks the first one open starts drinking and like will not get up from the chair until he's finished like the 10 beers and he says by that point you've written a lot of crap but you've probably also written something that is refreshing that the next day once you've recovered you know you can go and do I, but i've always wanted to try it never been able to hmm. cuz i'd probably just pass out <laughs> right like i feel like crack would probably work better for that though right mm. Something to really open it up, right? Not make you fall asleep. Oh, really? No, no, like I'm assuming the ten beers you'd yeah, fall right. asleep. Oh, like, exactly. Yeah. By my sixth, I'd certainly be down yeah. for the count. Yeah, I don't think the beers would work for me. I'd get full. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I would fall asleep in my chair. Yeah, maybe a little cranky too. <laughs> Do you guys have a name of the production company, or it's just we're just Gagerman and Waller? You de- you tend to the way that the the thing works is that there's a lot of writing teams yeah. and they're all sort of known by their somebody and somebody so like you know there's the, there's another there's another team Gatewood and Tanaka there's uh Gagerman and Waller there's you know there's those what was it Kurtzman and Orsi are like you know the big ones so there's always that's the way you kind of go Altschuler and Krinsky I always thought that one had a good ring to it yeah, because the we um, when we literally when we started writing together, we sat down with a lawyer, and the lawyer said, "Every place you go, you're going to check in to a meeting. You say 
Gagerman and Waller are here. If you call your agent, you tell the assistant it's Gagerman and Waller. You just stamp yourself. That's just your brand. So it's your brand. Yeah. I guess that does sound better than um, than Waller and Gagerman. Gagerman and Waller kind of rolls off the tongue easy, huh? That was uh, yeah. I mean, that's that the way we the came decision. up with it. Yeah. yeah. It was it was not a power dynamic thing. Also, it does seem to be a, a alphabetical does seem to be the standard for some reason. Is that true? Yeah. I think maybe. Got it. So what's what's like fascinating you guys recently? In the world in, in general. Yeah. Uh so well Andrew recently has gotten really into craft beer and sports, which is weird because I was always the one who was into sports. Mm. And then I've sort of and so he is the, like usually the thing that fascinates us is the first hour of our day. Right. It's like the 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 distraction before we work. Mm-hmm. So lately it's been sports scandals, um, which, you know, that's what people talk about in offices. Mm-hmm. Um, Talking a lot about Billy Ocean lately. Billy Ocean this week has been big because we've been watching some. We've some been Billy watching Ocean like we were like, what? Ha-, you know, for the, it, this is the way it starts. What happened to Billy Ocean? Right. That's the question that I feel like your listeners are mm-hmm. dying to know. And it turns out like Billy Ocean looks fucking awesome is what he's doing. <laughs> he like li- literally he's got this like amazing mane of white hair and he's like doing legacy shows like all over Britain. His voice is like butter. It's amazing. Silky smooth. I watched him do Suddenly recently, Acoustic. I mean, it was remarkable. And I'm just sort of like, oh, like, what's that guy up to? And then, mm. and that can spur, hey, you know, an idea. Like, oh, what is Billy Ocean doing? Like, who's Billy Ocean's manager? What's that like? Mm. Who else does Billy Ocean's manager manage? Would that be a good TV show? Like, that sort of first hour can lead to those sort of discussions. Or it could just lead to us watching a lot of Billy Ocean. <laughs> But it's pretty awesome. And by the way, either way, it's a win. My question is, why can't I find him doing? I want to ask. I want to ask Billy Ocean why he doesn't do "Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car." He, I'm sure he, stopped he does playing that. Well, I haven't seen. I went on the, my YouTube searches, have not been able to find a more modern version of that. I'd love to see his like slowed down, like acoustic version. That would be great. Have you guys seen um, what's happened with Billy Corgan? No, you know, uh, yeah, sure, Smashing Pumpkins, sure. yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's gone off on some some weird. Bit. He owns this this wrestling franchise, mm. um, but he's also he's also I, I heard like a wrestling league, yeah, like like a, like like a, a competitor mini WWF, okay. where he 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 owns that and he gets into that. And you see these pictures of him like holding these wrestler belts, yeah. Um, and there there was some conspiracy stuff, but I think the the it was kind of sad to hear that that he he has to play all his old hits. But he plays them really fast because he's so sick of them, mm. and so these concerts are like he he can't play the the new stuff that he wants to. He has to play this old stuff. He says everything's short attention span, and you need to get to the chorus immediately. And it just kind of sounded like the opposite of the Billy Ocean story. It sounded like the yeah, downward. and it's oh, a, Billy is still enjoying. He is still enjoying <laughs> Caribbean Queen, and but I, uh, the funny thing is, Mike, you've been looking to diversify your portfolio. We hadn't even thought about like wrestling leagues. That's a good point, right? That put could some be. money into that, <laughs> right? Yeah, Just like, we've been, like a... we have been talking about the fact that, like, yeah, we can never seem to rely on, you know, like a job. We need like a turnkey business that we can have on the side. I, you know, I was thinking of, you know, maybe more like laundromats, but I think maybe a wrestling franchise is. A what, good about, way to go. what about what about G and W Foxy Boxing? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just sort of like a fun <laughs> foxy boxing thing. Because, I mean, I feel like interesting people would be coming through the office. Sure. Does foxy boxing mean models, like women models boxing? I mean, it's, it's, like yeah. a, it's, like a, it's like lady boxing. With, like, oversized uh, gloves, like mm-hmm. cartoon gloves oh. almost. Um, so there's, you know, less damage. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Uh, foxy boxing, I feel like maybe had its day. Mm, yeah, I think it's done. I, I've been taking boxing recently, and it's it's like a great workout. I want to get in the ring, but the assistant who's at the boxing place I go to, the whole half side of his face is like shut down and messed up. I says, "Is that from a fight?" He's like, yeah, yeah, I feel like that's it, it, not a good I, front man for that business, <laughs> right? Yeah, I feel like that person should be in the back doing the paperwork. It makes paper me a little work. concerned to get in the ring, I got to say. And I don't know if that could be surgically changed or if that's just his face now or what's... Even if it could be surgically <laughs> changed, I think you should still be concerned about going down that route. Right. 
and what is the what is driving you to want to get in the ring? Is it the, like the personal challenge? Is it to actually hit somebody? It's all of it. I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest workouts. It's so intense. Um, there's just kind of, I, I feel like, I don't know. Adrenaline rush? Yeah, the, the adrenaline. But part of me is like reconnecting to this, this deep primal masculine side, you know, of losing that just wanting to rip something's head off kind of feel. I don't have you don't a have deep Did you have masculine that? side. <laughs> <laughs> I really just don't. I, I'm try, I mean, I'm trying to think if I ever did. I don't think I really did. I get it. I mean, I think it's cool. I yeah. just don't. Well, you have a lot of hair, and that's very masculine. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah. the one thing that uh, – I mean, you should see Mike's face on the elliptical. I mean, <laughs> I he is a man on, on a mission. Really? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm usually listening to Roar, but, like, you know, it's, so I don't know how masculine well, that's, that is. Well, that's why your face looks like that. It's right. just like, yeah, it's, uh, Roar is all about just, like, your inner – Whatever right. your inner beast, yeah, yeah. You used to listen My to those, those punk bands back in the day, huh? Uh, Didn't you? Yeah, no maybe. doubt. <laughs> no. no doubt is the punk band he listened to in college. It was like a, it was like all the indie rock bands, which right. is not very masculine. Like Pixies, probably. Right? Sure, yeah. Not mm-hmm. even. <laughs> what when was the gin blossoms sure <laughs> the gin blossoms are big look everybody's got room in their playlist for the gin blossoms mm-hmm. i'm gonna remember, put that back on my workout man remember how obsessed we were with snapple back then sure oh i did like, love myself obsessed snapple. why I don't know. It was juice. We were still children. It wasn't even juice. It was ten percent juice. Right. It was water, sugar, and it literally said on the bottle, ten percent juice. Yeah, just, I think it just felt cooler than soda for some yeah. reason, like more adult. Right. Well, it had caffeine in it. That was something. That's and true. it had caffeine, and we weren't drinking coffee yet. And we needed something to get through those weekends. Those weekends, right? Because those weekends we would just go through cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was weird. I, you know, I mean, I, I was a weird kid, but I was like, I'd be proud of the fact that I drank six snapples in a day. <laughs> hmm. So Billy Ocean. Yeah. So yeah, we're burning on Billy Ocean. Um, I don't know. I read a lot of like weird nerd film blogs. That's sort of my that's sort of my poison mm. is the nerd film blogs. I don't know what's what's Mike. Mike, you're surfing. Uh, lately, I've been lately for me. It's been uh, it's been actually been a lot of podcasts. Um, so it's been a lot of, but it's a lot of weird like nerd polit- uh, political podcasts, uh, nerd history podcasts. I just I just listened to a uh, book on tape for the first time in a long time. Oh, that yeah, was really it. good. What What do you think is is are some of the factors of the great podcasts you've heard? Like, what makes it awesome? Well, I love I love the podcasts that do somebody's personal history from. You know, when they were growing up through sort of how they became who they became. Like, I like that narrative is something that I am like really get fascinated. Jeez, I'm by. picturing if I were to do that, it would look like the scenes where Chunk is captured in the in the Goonies. Mm-hmm. Where they're like, tell us everything. Everything. <laughs> there was that time in fourth grade. Like, I would, that would be me. That would be my story. Yeah, All the s- embarrassments. For some reason, I'm when somebody's like, oh, who were you in high school? Mm-hmm. Like, I want to know that. Like, of somebody who's you know, done well. I want to know who they were in high school. I want to know how they got into college and I want to know how they dealt with their twenties. Like that kind of story arc really kind of interests me. Hmm. I I mean, I I think it's, it's a really crafty skill. Like uh, recently, so recently um, Terry Gross agreed to be interviewed by Mark Marin, And that was really interesting because Terry Gross is like this amazing interviewer. She's like amazing at getting people to, to, to tell their story, but you know nothing about her. Mm-hmm. And Mark Marin is like much more of a blunt instrument who mm-hmm. somehow gets you to reveal things about yourself by talking about himself, uh, which is a completely like almost opposite approach. Uh, and so, so watching him try to like pull things out of her and watching her like very reluctantly give it up was, was like a really interesting thing to listen to. Yeah. I'll put that on my recommend list. Got it. Got it. So, um, so what's what stuff you guys are, are there stuff that you guys have that's out there right now that we could like even watch on Netflix or anything? Like? So there's there's one, uh, there's a movie that that is in the can, as they say. Yeah. It's done, uh, but it hasn't been released yet. We don't have a release date for it yet. Um, it's possible that it can be found, um, you know, on some pirating website. I'm not sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's good. Well, but it's called Surge Party. It's got the, if you watch Silicon Valley, it's got TJ Miller and Thomas Middleditch in it. Adam Pally, who was uh, great in Happy Endings and the Mindy Project. Uh, Allison Brie. Um, and it's a very funny movie. So we're, we're excited to... Uh, for the world to be able to see That's it. That's awesome. And did you guys have influence on that as it's being made, or did you just hand over the script and then you just hope they do something great with it? No, the, the, it's a good question because it can happen. That can happen both ways. Right. In this case, we'd worked closely with the director uh, in writing it, uh, and so he he uh, the director is Scott Armstrong, mm. um, who's a you know very big screenwriter. He wrote Old School and Road Trip and uh, the second Hangover movie and a bunch of other stuff. And um, and so he he kept us very involved throughout the process, but on a on a business level we were not involved. On a decision making you know studio level, yeah, we were the writers and we turned it in and mm-hmm. we you know finished our rewrite and and we're officially out of it. Uh, then if you look up on the wall there, there's uh, the Blood Brothers comic book that we wrote for Dark Horse. Whoa, it was two two. Uh, Two vampire buddies who've been friends for a thousand years, and so they've got a lot of baggage. <laughs> and they're dealing, you know, they're trying to stop the end of the world, as you might imagine. Uh, so, yeah, we deal a lot in sort of what we call dude buddy comedy. Uh-huh. It's mostly dudes who are friends getting in some sort of trouble. Uh, so we write a lot of that. When's the last time you two got in trouble? Got in trouble. Yeah. You mean not like just with, with our wives for right. being late? Right. You mean yeah, like that's real not, trouble? Yeah, like, oh, that's a good question. Because it seems like that needs to happen if that hasn't in a while. It hasn't happened in a while. Mm-hmm. It's funny because that's you know that that goes back to the you know to those research trips that right. you brought up. It's you know, um, and we have not. We we all. I think we have plans to get in trouble when we approach a new idea. We're like, mm-hmm. oh. We should go down to to Tijuana and see what kind of trouble we can get in. And we're at a point in our lives where something gets in the way, and we say, "No, we're not going to do that." It sounds Let's fucking. Just, it sounds exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> just tired, just thinking about it. Uh, so we don't get into a lot of uh, what you would call real world trouble. Got it. Well, I hope you do. Yeah, I'm really disappointed in that answer. <laughs> I feel like. And why are the miss all of the Mister Men? And little misses on the wall. Uh, that's a well. There's well. So what happens? One of the the other things that happens is uh, people have ideas, and they'll come to a group of screenwriters and say, "Hey, we have a you know we we have an idea, or we have a property. Uh, you know, we'd like you know people, somebody to adapt, and so we'll be you know." asked to be to, to come in and deliver our sort of take on that material mm-hmm. and so that was one where they were asking somebody has the rights to the mr mm. men franchise come and, and dance for us yes oh wow so that's, is that gonna happen it, it, that one's like in process wow we've done um we've met with uh we've met with the rights holder or with the with the studio and you know you sort of have be... to work your way through the system yeah as you do that and as you can see there, we have the Laker girls on the wall. We're hoping to do a Laker girl project. Not really. That The Laker girls are just <laughs> randomly on the wall. You guys ever do improv? Never. No. Never. Have you ever tried? Mm-mm. No. I've been meaning to sign up for a class Mike for about is... two and a half years. <laughs> and there's like four within a one-mile radius of here, and I haven't made it. Have you done improv? Oh, yeah. I love it. Oh, I... that's right. We saw your stand-up. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That was good. <laughs> but was that's fun. a different muscle it's from improv, complete, right? It feels like a completely different muscle. Yeah. Completely different. I think we would benefit from that because it's a, it's a, it's a different way to generate ideas. It's so good. I think you guys would really get a lot out of it. Now, do you think we should do it together, or do you think we should sign up separately whichever way you will do it however you like if whatever it takes gets it you done. yeah whatever gets it done okay what and how has it helped you um it helps you say yes to things yeah like say <laughs> but also <laughs> just not a big improv yeah, yes, well, and. It's, it's yes, yes and yes and, and right. it's amazing how much it applies to life just not going counter to things right and just going in the direction and oh we're going this way let's just keep going this way so it's a flow thing. it's a flow thing it's yeah a total we could flow use thing. that yeah, flow hack. I feel like there was a lot of it was interesting cuz I I went to film school so there were a lot of we actually took a bunch of acting classes. And it was always fun, but it, it was definitely it felt the, the acting classes that they had at USC were always felt more old school 
acting and it wasn't a very improv based education. Yeah. It was more like you read the text. Yeah. Were you good at it? I was I would say decent. I mean, it, I don't know, honestly. I, I, it, it's funny because the times when it would flow too, it's like the audience disappeared and I wouldn't even hear laughter. And somebody would say, oh, that was so funny. I was like, it was. But you're just so in the moment. And the weird thing about improv too that I think like you guys would really enjoy figuring out as well is that it's always surprising what's funny. Right. You know, you, like you'd say something and be like, wow, I didn't realize that was funny. And things that you think are funny are not. And it's almost this live test environment of humor that that makes a lot of sense i think it would help a lot i think the thing keeping me from it is like i have a really high shame quotient like i'm just easily embarrassed i think just over the course of this conversation there's probably been four things that Mm. i've said that i'm immediately mortified about and so doing an improv class especially early on is really going to raise the bar on that where i'm just constantly going to be ashamed of myself and I'm and while that might be a healthy thing for me, it's a hard thing to jump into with two feet. I get it. I, I don't I think it. you need no more shame in your life. Thank you. It, 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 it's weird how it's it's one of those things where as freeing as it might be, it just it just it makes it go away quicker. Like I found it. It's it's much improv. I found it to be way easier than stand up. Um, but with stand up, the interesting thing was um, because when when you're on improv there, especially with your good if you're with good players, they'll save you and they'll be there for you. But even if you're not, it's at least you're in it together, right? But stand up. But what if there's like one guy who really sucks? Are you still sucks. in it? Are you it's, still in it together? No, not really. I mean, it really it, that really sucks when they won't go for it, and they they're not listening and they're not paying attention. And it, it, it there's improv a good really... Broad City about that. You Is ever there? watched Broad City? Oh, I, I've I've seen clips that I love. I got to watch it more. There was an episode where the, the, the one of them was dating the guy who was just the shitty improv guy <laughs> that was just ruining it for all the other improv guys. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying I would be that guy, but I certainly could be. Yeah. I mean, the advantage is that it's around people you don't know, and it's over in a second, and it's done, and then you're on to the next thing. It's like, it, it, I think it's the fastest shame processing ever, because you just go through it, and then it's over, and then you're done. Right, right. Although I feel like if you take the class, then you're going to do it, and then you have all week until the next class to try to redeem yourself <laughs> from the horrible thing you said the week before. <laughs> mm-hmm. That I mean, it's was... funny to hear you say that because, like, I haven't heard anything you said today that sounds shameful at all. I'm sure, I'm sure it doesn't, but that doesn't keep me from reliving it in my mind and being like, "Oh, that." Got was it. So you must enjoy that on some level. Uh, some level I haven't yet discovered. Maybe. Why would you do it otherwise? Why would I do what? Like re- even replay it on your mind or do that kind of thing? It must have oh, some so you kind think, of anxiety. Oh, you think? Yeah, you you think Mike's shame spiral is <laughs> is like somehow like something he enjoys? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder that when we write our scripts because frequently, you know, because part of the thing is, you know, our scripts, like, we'll sit there and we'll go over every single line. Like, it's very rare that anybody would, we would hand anybody a script where every line hasn't been over, you know, half a dozen times. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I don't know, that's just sort of part of who we are, that there's something about locking something in. Um, and that if there were a line in there that, hadn't been gone over or was did read weird when I read it later on, I would feel like, oh, what happened there? Yeah. It's like a perfectionist thing or something. Right. That's the problem. Mm. Yeah. So we're coming up on about 48 minutes. We tend to, to, to do these till about you know 50 minutes or so. I'm curious, though, since you guys listen to a lot of podcasts, yeah. have you found that there's an ideal size? Because some people do will do these 20 minutes just straight to the point. Others, like Joe Rogan, can go two and a half hours sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, What have you found in your listening? I, I, I find I don't mind the ones that go long. If, if I'm not super interested, I'll... To stop. Turn it off. There is – I think there's something sort of senseless about having a time limit because part of the – what's freeing about the medium is that you're not subject yeah. to whatever the time slot is. Totally. So I, I, I think it's silly to have a, a set time, particularly if – I'm not saying this is one that would, that would go on and be uh, <laughs> in, interesting for two and a half hours. But if you were talking to someone more interesting than we are – There'd be no reason to cut it off, and and I would stick with it as a listener. And who cares if I didn't? Right. If it's interesting to you, you should keep going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it seems like the ones that are like you know the that are like forty five minutes or are good to listen to in two 
two chunks. So mm-hmm. it would be the hour and you know the forty five minutes, and then the whatever that is, hour and twenty minute ones. Yeah, I think it depends also on the type. The ones that are more informational, yeah, I want those to be like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna devote thirty minutes right to to learning about this thing. Yeah. I don't I don't listen to any podcast that's under thirty minutes. I would say that mm. not on purpose, but it seems like none of the ones that I listen to and that like are like little tidbits. Yeah, you know they're all something where people are sinking into discussions. Right. I did happen to listen to an eight-minute podcast this morning, mm. but it was it was one of the Slate podcasts they do. Um, it's called Listen Up. They do a sports one. And so they just did a special bonus eight minutes to talk about that Sepp Blatter, that sort of horrible uh, human being who, who had to step down um, from FIFA. Mm, right. I don't know if you followed that. Sorry. Uh, uh-huh. It's an interesting one. And so that – but that was really more of just a bonus, hey, let's talk about this one issue. Usually right. that would be one of three issues in a 45-minute podcast. Yeah. So you are probably are in the right place. Yeah. Well, is there anything that you guys would want to say to our millions of listeners while you have <laughs> them on the line here? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think, I mean, if they, if you are interested in writing, I think that the best thing you could do is just to start writing. That would Agreed. be, that would be my big. No, it's, it's the biggest. I remember that I have it in the beginning of my book. I said the, the, the biggest tip I got was from my friend Chance who said, uh, the secret I have to writing is the only one you don't want to hear. And I'm like, what? He's like, just write it. And that's, you're right. That's it. You just write you have to, and you have to write something bad before you can write something good. Yeah, I'm always. By the way, I'm always impressed by the people who are like, I had five, I had five scripts in a drawer, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I would have died if it took us five scripts. <laughs> it took Mike and I the, the the script that sold was our second script, uh-huh. um, together, and that, and I feel like if it had been that between many us, more, we might have five or four before you know. Before we had started writing That's together, we, we each wrote a couple. Right, right. Um, and you know, but you you always, I think, yeah. The thing is, you have to also start writing. Uh, you, you have to start writing the next one before the first one is complete. Right. You, you can't if you focus entirely on one thing and you play it out to completion. And if you're if it's something that you're trying to sell and you go out and you try to sell it and then fail, it's really hard to then. Start start the new thing yeah when you're starting when you're close to finishing something and you're feeling good about it that's when it's a really good time to start to think about the new idea because yeah. you can use the energy the finishing energy to start something new that's awesome that is awesome <laughs> it's amazing we should do that one time <laughs> yeah <laughs> well now you guys can take all the awesome energy from this podcast and once i leave you guys can just take that energy and straight to lunch go to lunch <laughs> yeah i don't know what he's doing he's been... We, we uh, listen, we're up early with the kids. So, you know, 1130 is like when we start talking. Hey, are you hungry? Oh, well, yeah, I'm hungry. Where's <laughs> a good sandwich? We go to the sandwich place. Nice. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, guys. Hey, thanks for thanks having for us. Yeah, out. everybody, you can see more at culturehackers.com. And as we said in the last episode, love to hear feedback. So if you're hearing it all the way to this end, you can email me at robert at cultureblueprint.com. And would love to hear your feedback. And uh, please rate us on iTunes as well. See you next episode. Thanks, guys. Thanks.